Well, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. And yes, we are finishing Colossians today. Maybe some of you guys say amen to that. Others of you may be disappointed. A few of you may be disappointed. But we are finishing Colossians today with verse 18. This is Paul's final message from this beautiful letter to these Colossian believers. And he says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. With those words, he concludes his letter. The custom at the time was, was to dictate a letter and then conclude it with a signature, personally signed. And so that's what happens here with Paul. He has dictated this letter and he concludes it with his own apostolic signature by his own hand uh, at the end of the letter for the Colossians to know that this is, um, ap- has fullness of apostolic authority. He also commands them, if, if you notice there in verse 18, to remember his imprisonment. As if to say, don't forget to pray for me. He is imprisoned for the cause of Christ. They know this. That's why they have sent Epaphras also to check up on him and how he is doing there. And this is sort of his urgent plea for them to remember him in their prayers. And then on the heels of that statement, he concludes with these words, grace be with you. Which is not just a a statement that Paul tacks on because he has nothing left to say at the end of his letter here. It isn't that he um, just flippantly or haphazardly wants to send this word to them as if it means nothing or very little. Paul's wish in all of his letters, in some way, shape, or form, is that, is that his readers, these believers, would experience the grace of God, saving grace as well as in their own life. That they would be empowered and enabled by the grace of God. Every single letter of his has some form of of grace extended to the readers. And this letter as well. See, for Paul, grace had profound significance and substance, beloved. This was a man, Paul, who had lived a life by the letter of the law. Seeking to achieve acceptance before a holy God by his own human merit and his own human performance, by adhering to a a strict code of self-effort and personal fulfillment. And then one day, in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, Paul had a collision with the living Christ. And he was never the same again. He realized at that moment, when conversion took place, as he saw Jesus in a way that he had never known him before. That salvation comes by grace through faith in that one revealed Christ alone. Grace had profound significance for him and substance because of his own experience. And he could attest to the fact that the Christian life begins by grace and it continues on for the rest of our life until we see our Lord Jesus face to face by grace. How do you define grace personally? How do you define it? Here are a couple of great definitions. Grace is God's unmerited, undeserved, and unsolicited favor and blessing shown to sinners who deserve only His just punishment. In other words, grace is God's unmerited. We cannot earn it. His free gift of salvation 
It's not by works, but by grace. It's undeserved. We are not worthy of God's grace of, in salvation. It is unsolicited in the sense that God sent His Son into the world, initiating reconciliation unto Himself by faith in His Son. We were not looking for God. He found us. William Hendrickson defines grace like this. God's grace is his active favor bestowing the greatest gift upon those who have deserved the greatest punishment. Somebody else has defined grace this way. Grace is God's blessing given to us at Christ's expense. Applied to us by faith in Jesus Christ alone. In other words, it's free to us. But it cost God, the Father, His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It cost Him everything, though it's free to us, the gift of salvation. It is this grace, beloved, that I think we need to ponder and reflect upon this morning and that Paul highlights here in verse 18. And every single word of God and His Word is important. And I want to I spend some time relishing and, and celebrating this statement here. Grace be with you, and in particular, the grace of God in our lives. In a sense, we can say that this whole letter can be summed up with the word grace. If you and I as believers, as Christians, are going to live a Christ-exalting life where we make much of the Lord Jesus Christ here on this earth until His return, you and I must live by grace. By grace. And so as we think about everything that we have walked through in Colossians, and as we look back in the next hour or so, or 50 minutes or so, I want us to, to reflect upon two great principles relative to grace that you and I must live by if we are to live a Christ-exalting life. All of us desire to make much of Jesus Christ. All of us desire to, to bring honor and glory to our Lord Jesus. Here are two great principles relative to grace that you and I must continually meditate upon and be reminded of so that it catapults us into a life of holiness and obedience. And I'm going to give you the two principles up front. First of all, the Christ-exalting life is anchored in God's grace. Anchored in God's grace. That is, God's grace must be our security, our assurance, our stability for the Christian life. And secondly, the Christ-exalting life is, is propelled by God's grace. Propelled by God's grace. As we are established in the grace of God, beloved, we are catapulted and energized to a life of loving obedience and holiness before God. The more that we understand that God indeed loves us, if we are in Christ Jesus, we are driven and catapulted to living a life of loving obedience and holiness before Him. Those two truths work together. So first of all, the Christ-exalting life Notice is anchored in God's grace. You and I must be rooted and established in the grace of God, in His favor and blessing shown toward us, and reminded continually and meditating upon that, so that we are living a Christ-exalting life. And in the book of Colossians, as we look back at this letter in survey fashion, this means at least two things. To be anchored in the grace of God means at least two things. It means, first of all, fundamentally, that we are saved by the grace of God. We're saved by the grace of God. It's a simple truth. 
but so often forgotten by us as believers. As you look back in Colossians chapter 1 with me, notice this. In verse 3, Paul opens up by giving thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for these believers because of their salvation. Notice verse 4, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. They have faith. They have responded in obedient faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's love manifested in their lives as the fruit of that of regeneration taking place. They have a hope laid up for them in heaven. Verse 5, notice of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. How did they become, how did they get, how were they saved? Well, they, they, they were saved by hearing the word of truth, the gospel. The good news concerning Jesus Christ and that they could find forgiveness for their sins in Jesus Christ. The gospel, verse 6, which has come to you. Just as in all the world, it is also constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. They heard the gospel. They understood it in a saving way. And notice how Paul describes the, the gospel at the end of verse 6. He calls it the grace of God in truth. He equates the gospel with the grace of God because it's in the gospel, beloved. The gospel sheds light on the grace and the love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. This is a grace that Paul wants them to understand in a greater way and be driven to great fruitfulness in their Christian walk. Notice in verse 12, and one of the evidences that we're understanding the grace of God in a greater way is that we are people of gratitude. He says in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. I pray that you would be a thankful people to the Father. And he reminds them of the fact that they did nothing to earn God's salvation. It is all by his doing. Notice in verse 12, the father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So speaking of God, speaking of, of him saving them, that he, he transferred them from darkness and put them into the kingdom of light. That could be said for all of us, beloved. That there was a point in time when we were under the domain of darkness. And look at verse 13. God the Father rescued us from the domain of darkness. To rescue someone uh, has, has by implication means that we needed, we were in a desperate, hopeless predicament. You don't rescue someone who is okay. You rescue someone who is in trouble. And all of us who are, who are believers this morning were rescued from our terrible predicament. And if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ this morning, you are in a terrible predicament. You are in trouble, eternally speaking. God the Father then does the rescue operation. And what does he do instead? Look at verse 13. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Literally the son of his love. He put us into his kingdom. United us by faith in Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. To redeem someone there is to has the imagery of buying someone out of the marketplace, out of slavery to sin in, in, in our case. We were slaves of sin under the power of sin, and God redeemed us in His Son, bought us out of the marketplace of slavery, and put us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And in Christ... In his beloved son, we have the forgiveness of sins. How glorious is that, isn't it? To be forgiven 
It means that we had offended God, beloved. That there was a breach in our relationship with God and it needed to be made right. We had offended a holy God. And someone had to pay the price for uh, 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 the payment for, and, and, and take upon himself the wrath of God for our sins. And it was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that by faith in him, we have the forgiveness of sins. We have peace with God. We have reconciliation before our Heavenly Father. See, the Christian understands and is anchored in the great reality that we have been forgiven by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That should be our anchor. We should be reminded of that continually. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, was a man prior to his conversion who had a great intellect, a lot of knowledge, knew a lot of even theology, the study of God, knew a lot about God, a lot about his word. But he was a, a, a Catholic monk who would be beating himself constantly and continually because he could not find peace in his conscience. He just couldn't be good enough. And in this book that I've been reading on the legacy of Martin Luther by R.C. Sproul and Stephen Nichols, here is the testimony of his life, of his conversion, reflecting on his salvation, ultimately experiencing the grace of God. Notice the transition where he goes from this works-based um, uh, just guilt-ridden lifestyle to then worship because of the grace of God in his life. He says, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he, he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the God of righteousness who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. And said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, without having God at pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospel, threatening us with his righteous wrath. Thus, I rage with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. He's speaking of his study in the book of Romans. And that, and that statement, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As he studied that, he says, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, In it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness, uh, the passive righteousness with which mercifully God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again. And had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scripture from memory. I also found in other terms an analogy as the work of God. That is what God does in us. The power of God with which he makes us wise. The strength of God. The salvation of God. The glory of God. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love. I extolled to God my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before um, I hated the word, the righteousness of God, or the phrase. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. End quote. The shackles were removed, beloved. 
That sense of, of guilt because he was seeking to find acceptance before God by self-effort and performance. And then he recognized that it's all by the grace and the gift of God. See, that catapulted then Luther to a life of great usefulness and fruitfulness when he understood that it was the saving grace of God by which he could be accepted before a holy God. I am afraid, beloved, that many of us sitting in here this morning have not understood that grace, have not trusted in Jesus Christ. I'm afraid that there are many in here who have not turned from their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ, have been forgiven because you are still trying to to trust in your own works. You're still depending upon your own goodness, your own good works in comparison to other people as if that's going to gain favor uh, for you before a holy God. As if you can be good enough someday standing before God in heaven and it, and it will be according to the things that you did here on this earth. I'm afraid for some of us sitting in here that maybe you're just altogether going through the motions, coming in and out every single week, dece- deceived into thinking that if I can just pretend well enough, if I can just externally look in a certain way, look like other genuine Christians, then I'm going to be left alone and maybe I can even get away with it before a holy God someday. Well, as I read in First Samuel this last week, the Lord does not look upon man in the same way as man does, right? Man looks upon the external appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He knows your heart. And I want to encourage you that salvation is by grace alone, a free gift offered to you, not based upon anything that you can do. You cannot reform yourself. Because how, how, uh, what is good enough? God requires perfection. God requires that you would, that you would be like him. Perfect, morally perfect. And every single one of us falls short. So you can never be good enough, beloved. You can never be good enough. See, there comes a point when every single one of us must make this very personal, right? When every single one of us must ask ourselves the hard questions. Like the multitudes needed to ask themselves the the hard questions in the days of Jesus. When multitudes were after him. Multitudes wanted to come and hear from Jesus. And many, many people walked away from Jesus because they did not see Jesus for who he was and what he was offering them. Namely, forgiveness of their sins. They didn't see Jesus, beloved. And so they heard the word, but they didn't really hear in a saving way. There are many people in churches like that where you hear and hear and hear, but you're not really hearing where it's impacting the affections and the the desires of your own heart. And it causes you to be broken before a holy God so that you cry out, Lord, be gracious to me, a sinner. And God will answer broken and contrite people like that who are broken over their sin. See, when you understand that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, There is no way that you're going to live your life trying to somehow be good enough. Have you repented of your sins this morning? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Are you clothed with the righteousness of Christ? So that the burden of of living a life of of perfection or or acceptance before other people is removed from your life because you are clothed in Jesus' righteousness and you're accepted by God and you know and you're convinced that He loves you in Jesus Christ. Oh, beloved, to 
To be anchored in the grace of God means that you live with a sense of, of the fact that you have been forgiven and you're loved. You've been accepted in Jesus. But also, to be anchored in God's grace means that we stand in God's grace. Not only are we saved by God's grace, but we remember that we stand in God's grace. In other words, we're secure. We're assured of His love as Christians because of what Jesus Christ has done. See, true believers would never deny that they are saved by grace through faith, initially speaking, as they begin their Christian journey. None of us would deny that. That it wasn't by works, by being good enough, but it was by faith in Jesus Christ and His atoning work. Not even faith itself was a work of ours. It was a gift granted to us. It was all by Jesus' work. None of us would deny that. But something interesting happens in the Christian life that as we live life more and more, we forget that it is to be lived by grace as well, that we are sustained by the grace of God, that we stand in God's grace as well. We become performance-driven. We think that if God is going to love us, that we need to do certain things in order to remain in good standing with God. Beloved, we're saved by grace and we are kept Stand by His grace. And Paul makes this point to the Colossians by taking them to the, to the top of the theological Mount Everest, if you will, to remind them of who, with a capital W, who they have trusted in and who they need to continue to trust in. Because they are being diverted away from Jesus and they're beginning to think that somehow they could live the Christian life by focusing on self-performance and self-effort and their own intellect and other things that are driving them away from Jesus. And so he reminds them in chapter 1, verses 15 and following, about Jesus Christ's preeminence and his supremacy. To let them know that Jesus is sufficient. Who is he? Look at chapter 1 and verse 15. Who is the one in whom Christians continue to live in dependence of? It is none other than the risen, exalted Christ, right? Look at verse 15. He, the Son, from the end of verse 13, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him, through the Son, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Paul says you need to focus upon Jesus. He is God. He's not a derivative of God. Everything that God the Father is, the Son is in His infinite glory. He is preeminent over creation. He is, not, he is not a created being. Instead, He is the eternal creator and sustainer of it all. In verses 16 through 17, Jesus is high and mighty. And what about with relation to the, to the new creation, the church, in verses 18 through 20? He is the sovereign Lord of the new creation of the church. 
Oh, Colossian believers, Paul says, focus upon Jesus. Don't be diverted away from him to these things like empty philosophy and legalism and mysticism and and asceticism. Don't focus on on things that fall under the umbrella of your self-efforts as if Jesus isn't glorious enough and he hasn't accomplished salvation for you already. Stand firm in Jesus, the preeminent supreme one. So he takes them to the peak here of this mountain, theologically speaking, to show them the glory of Christ. And beloved, why is that so important for the Colossians? Why was it so important for them? And why is it so important for us to be fixing our eyes on Jesus? It is for our encouragement, isn't it? Our encouragement. Because you see, we lose sight of Christ. As they lost sight of Christ, we lose sight of Christ. And they needed to be reminded, as we do, of the preeminence of Jesus. Thus, why he is sufficient. He's everything that you need. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul wants these, these Colossians to be encouraged. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle. That word is from the word agonizomai. I agonize for this, Paul says. I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for all those who are in Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Why? He says that their hearts, in order that their hearts may be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged. Not only that, having been knit together in love, I want you to be knit together in love, loving one another, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ. Christ. How do our believers to remain encouraged in a sin-cursed world where there are discouragements to, to go around in a plethora kind of way? Beloved, it is by focusing upon Jesus. How are we to be united in love? It's by focusing upon who we are together as one in Jesus Christ. That cultivates unity. As we focus upon our identity in Jesus Christ, first and foremost, Paul says, I want you to find encouragement, but that encouragement is only going to come as you focus upon God's mystery revealed, Christ himself. Jesus, in whom, look at verse 3, in whom Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Only in Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's not that he holds them on one hand and he hands them to you. Jesus is the treasure chest. You are in Christ. You are in that treasure chest yourself. Access to Jesus Christ. He is the treasure, beloved. The person of Jesus is all wisdom and all knowledge. And in him, in union with Jesus Christ, the Christian possesses all of the riches of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says that, that we have everything as believers pertaining to life and godliness in Christ. Everything that we need. Everything. And he goes on to give them instructions about obedience, things that they ought to add to their faith. But that's because they're in Christ already. They have everything that they need. Ephesians chapter 1 says that we we bless God the Father because he's blessed us believers with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. All of the treasures are for us because Christ is for us. He chose us in him. He adopted us in him. 
He redeemed us in Jesus Christ. We have forgiveness in union with Christ. We have been adopted in him. We have an inheritance in Jesus Christ. We have a hope in Christ. We have peace in this earth because of Christ. We have the spirit of of, of Christ. Being believers, we are one day going to see his very face and worship our living Christ, beloved. All of the spiritual blessings are there for us because of our union with Jesus Christ. But what does this mean then for us as believers? It means that that being anchored in God's grace, beloved, first and foremost means that we need to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ as revealed in his word. Focusing upon Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said in in Philippians chapter 3, reflecting on his past uh, lifestyle, seeking to earn God's favor by his his own righteousness, then post his conversion, he he says, it's not about me anymore. He says, I want to know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to, to the resurrection from the dead. To know Jesus was Paul's priority. He wanted to know Christ and focus upon Christ because he, the more introverted he became and, and, self, uh, and, and, and focused upon his own righteousness, even as a believer, the more that that led him to things that he didn't want in his life, similar to us as Christians. We need to focus upon the Lord, beloved. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Paul says there that we have to run the race with endurance. The race of the Christian life. How? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. You cannot finish the race without continuing to focus upon him, you understand. In a victorious manner. Listen. If you and I are to live a life of joy and and peace and hope and victory, beloved, experientially speaking, we must take our eyes off of ourselves and fix them on Jesus first and foremost. You won't find a life of joy, consistent joy and hope and peace by looking within for the answers in your own wicked heart to life's problems. You just won't. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand them? Only God does, right? You won't find uh, a lot of optimism or be very optimistic by looking at the world around you. You're not going to find a lot of joy by basing things on whether we're we're living in in a great place where there's peace all around us. That ain't happening, right? It isn't. But you can find joy and hope and peace, beloved, even in the midst of our suffering and our trials by setting our eyes on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We need to set our eyes on Jesus, the exalted Christ. We understand that as he sits at the right hand of the Father, he sits there. He is our high priest who continually intercedes for us, who's continually our mediator, our advocate before the Father. And that catapults us into a life of loving obedience and holiness, you see. See, we need someone bigger to look at, beloved. Someone bigger. Christ. Christ who transcends the earthly the temporal. I'm not talking about focusing upon the wimpy Christ of our, of our, of our own uh, creation or of our popular culture or of our imagination, but the Christ of the Bible. Our Jesus is too small, beloved. Too small. Many of us stick Jesus or have a Jesus that we stick in our back pocket 
a Jesus that is convenient to carry around. And we take him out whenever we, 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 we feel like a, we need an emotional boost. Or maybe we're in trouble or, 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 or some major trial hits. And then we pull out the little Jesus that we have. Listen, Jesus wants and should be reigning supreme even in the midst of your trials and your sufferings. And that is so hard, isn't it? I'm a human being standing here behind this pulpit preaching these things to you. Let me tell you, every single day is a battle because I'm flesh and blood just like you are, beloved. And I can sympathize and empathize with you. How hard that is. And yet we need to be encouraging one another to that. To focus on someone bigger, namely the risen and exalted Christ. He is a sovereign Jesus who is sufficient as seen on the pages of Scripture. So we need to be beholding the Jesus of, of the Bible. Isn't at the end of the day, Christianity fundamentally about a loving relationship with a living person, Christ? The more that we understand Him, the more that we understand His love for us, His forgiveness, the fact that, he, that God has, accepts us, that as Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, therefore having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have received our introduction by faith into this grace. Listen, in which we stand. We stand in grace. Romans chapter 8 verses uh, 31 and following. In light of the love of God, Paul says, who will separate us from the love of God? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can. He spared his own son. Oh, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not in his son freely give us all things? No one can bring a charge against us. God is the one who justifies in Christ. Listen, as a side note for you moms who are here this morning, believers in Jesus Christ, listen to me, this is so important for you in particular to remember today. I don't know about you, even even as a, a, a Father's Day, I always think, without even wanting to, I begin to think about all the bad things that I've done and all the things, my failures and weaknesses as a father. I'm sure it happens for mothers as well. I'm such a bad mother. I, you guys shouldn't even do anything for me, right? I have weaknesses. I have failures. I have frailties. I have vulnerabilities. Listen, beloved moms, let me tell you this. Make sure that you remember that you stand in the grace of God. That God loves you today. That if you've turned from your sins and you put your faith in Jesus, you are secure in the love of Christ. Amen? You're secure in Him. Don't focus upon your mothering and make that your, ident- your primary identity. Because you know what? Things are going to go south sometimes. Bad things are going to happen. Sins are going to take place. You're not always going to be at, your, at, the, at the top of your game. You will sin too. And if you're trusting and you're depending on your joy and your peace to be on, on, on your motherhood, then that's a slippery slope, isn't it? It goes the same for all of us, no matter what role God has called us to carry out. Single people, married, fathers, whatever, dads. It goes for everybody. Our identity is in Jesus Christ first and foremost. We need to be secure in the love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. Amen? Moms, remember that today. Remember that today. Your identity is in Jesus Christ alone first and foremost you want to live a Christ exalting life anchor yourself daily in God's grace anchor yourself daily in God's grace you're saved by the grace of God you stand in God's grace secondly 
Secondly, the Christ-exalting life is then propelled by God's grace. Propelled by God's grace. To propel means to drive or to, to motivate, to fuel or to push forward in a direction. As you and I are, are rooted and established and anchored in the grace of God, then that grace and that assurance and security of God's love for us in Jesus Christ fuels us, beloved, in a secure way to live the Christian life in loving obedience and holiness. And I'm aware that many people, even some Christians, view any exhortation to obedience as if it's the opposite of grace. Now we're going to go away from grace. The minute we start talking about obedience, it's now the opposite of grace. It's a contradiction to the gospel of grace. Listen to me. That's not what scripture says. It's an issue of seeing the bigger picture. Nothing that we do, our own human performance, gains us a right acceptance before a holy God. But having been justified, accepted before God by faith in Jesus Christ, declared righteous, we enter a process by which we are called to live in loving obedience. Unto good works, not on the basis of good works are we saved, but we are saved based upon the righteousness of Christ unto good works, to a life of loving obedience. Just think about some of these texts. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Say, see, it's all by grace. Keep reading. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Having turned from our sins, having trusted Christ, declared righteous, you enter a life of loving obedience. You are God's beautiful poem and masterpiece of good works that he's prepared beforehand. He saved you so that you would be a person devoted to good works. That's how Paul puts it to Titus. He says, tell our people, Titus chapter 3, verse 14, let our people learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, that they not be unfruitful. Believers, God wants us to be fruitful people. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And what does that grace do that saves? It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. The same grace that saves is the same grace that sanctifies, that teaches us to deny ungodliness and and put on Christ-like virtue. And that's what Paul really gets into beginning in in, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. Notice there. Here's the first imperative, as if you remember, in the letter, the first command given in chapter 2 verse 6. But it begins a series of 28 imperatives, commands for believers to obey all the way to chapter 4 verse 6 of Colossians. Here's the first one in chapter 2 verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The metaphor their walk has to do with our conduct, which has more to do than just our actions, our attitudes, our motivations, our words, our deeds, all have to do with our conduct, the don'ts as well as the do's in Christ. Christ is our Savior, but He's also our loving Lord who tells us how we need to be walking as a response of love and gratitude to Him, beloved. And so here in Colossians, we learn that the more secure we are in Jesus Christ and who we are in him and the higher view of the, uh, uh, the higher view we have of him, 
the more we are propelled to a life of loving obedience. One pastor has written this insightfully on this tension of grace and yet obedience. He says, quote, The law tells you to do, 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 but does not give you the hands and feet to do. But grace tells you to fly and gives you the wings to do so. I love that. The law tells you to do, 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 but does not give you the hands and feet to do. But grace tells you to fly and gives you the wings to do so. God empowers us by his spirit, beloved, so that we are propelled by grace. And now we are walking in loving obedience and in holiness before a holy God who desires as our heavenly father what is good for us and beneficial unto his glory, you see. So what kinds of things are we who are secure in Christ propelled to do by grace. Notice, first of all, we reject all counterfeit and cheap imitations of the gospel. Anything that has to do with giving effort for the purpose of me maintaining favor before a holy God, trying to be accepted based upon how good of a child I am. It didn't begin that way, and it doesn't continue that way. We reject all counterfeit and cheap imitations of the gospel that go back to self-performance for the purpose of gaining favor before God in a salvific kind of a way. Notice in chapter 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Paul says, any type of thinking... Any philosophical fortress that leads you away from Jesus, according to the tradition of men, no matter how smart and intelligent the philosophers of the history of mankind may have been, if they were not led to Christ by that knowledge, then we need to steer away from that type of stuff. From that type, those types of fortresses of thinking that lead us away from Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 16, notice. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. He says, don't be a legalist. Don't depend upon your own works to gain favor before God. All of those things, he says, whether it was a Sabbath or food or drink or festivals or whatever from the Old Testament, were all meant to point to the substance who is Jesus, literally the body who is Christ. That was the point. Don't focus on that. Focus on Christ. Why should we fight against legalism in the church, beloved, just as strong as licentiousness and libertarianism? This is why. Because legalism cheapens the gospel of grace. It cheapens it. It makes less of Christ by causing us to believe that if we do certain things, we can actually be good enough to maintain favor with God. We can actually do that. That's a lie from hell. To keep you even as a believer defeated, guilt-ridden constantly. Or you forget about Jesus and what he accomplished. So grace propels us to reject these types of things. Mysticism. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Any demonic false humility that places one's trust upon one's own experiences and visions in order to elevate oneself. What he's talking in verses 18 and 19 are where experience becomes more authoritative than scripture itself. These, these things lead to stunted growth because they are not attached to the head, he says in verse 19, who is Christ. Anything not attached to Christ 
that gains its life from Christ is dead and lifeless. It will not produce the fruit that you're looking for as a believer. It won't grow. Asceticism, verses 20 to 23, a focus on the strict, the strict do's and don'ts of religion. Listen, devoid of heart, devoid of a right motivation of glorifying God because of what he has done for you and forgiving you of your sins. Asceticism is the minimalizing of the Christian life to external rules. Just focusing on what you see on the outside in order to gain favor with God. It says, no. Listen, in all of these, beloved, in all of these, Paul is so serious about how harmful these cheap imitations of the gospel are that notice in verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Verse 16, therefore, no one is to act as your judge. Verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Verse 20, the implication there is don't submit yourself to such decrees, rigid ascetic rules, as if you can gain favor with God that way. Those are commands given to us as believers to basically protect and live in the freedom that we have in Christ, beloved. That Christ is granted for us from hell and punishment as well as from the power of sin. It will always be a tax on the sufficiency of Christ, beloved. Always will be. And listen, we as Christians are oftentimes the greatest enemies, aren't we? Our greatest enemies. We are so prone and bent toward trusting in our performance. Self-created methods of change. As if we could be good enough for God to continue to love us and to bless us. But listen, think about it. Jesus had to die because you are not good enough. I am not good enough. Such a simple statement, but I don't know about you. I constantly forget that. I wasn't good enough at the beginning. And I'm not good enough now. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And I, live, I need to live in the power and the security and the assurance that that brings to my life. We needed Christ to represent us, beloved, as the sinless, spotless sacrifice. We needed his righteousness credited to our account. Because our, our righteousness, as Isaiah puts it, are like filthy rags. Listen, this is why we need to return again and again to the cross. That the cross, as we gaze upon Jesus in his infinite glory, may propel us to holiness and loving obedience, beloved. And the more we look at the pages of Scripture and we're reminded of these truths, the more we are reminded that our sin is great, but Jesus is greater than our sin. Amen? It's greater than our sin. We need to return to that great reality. You are not good enough, but Christ is good enough. And you are in union with him and you can stand complete in him. Jesus says in John 15, 5, Abide in me. Remain under me. I am your Lord. Stay connected to me. For apart from me, you can't do nothing. You can do nothing. Nothing. Not only do we reject all cheap imitations of the gospel as we are propelled to, to live in obedient holiness, but we are also propelled by grace to relentlessly pursue holiness. In verses 1 through 17 of chapter 3, we don't have time to look at these great verses again, but it all begins, doesn't it, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, with focusing upon Jesus. We've been talking about that. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, who sits at the right hand of God. And as we do that, verses 5 through 17, we are going to be devoted people in the power of the Spirit to lay aside our sin and put on Christ-like virtue. Because we know that God has saved us 
and he desires what is best and beneficial for us for his glory. And that is that we would be set apart from sin because sin harms and destroys, beloved. And all of this requires effort on our part, but with the right motivation and not to gain God's favor and cheapen the, the work that Christ has accomplished. You say, what, are, what happened to God in all of this? Again, listen, in justification, the doctrine of justification is a beautiful doctrine, the heart of the gospel. In justification, God alone, in a moment, one-time event, declares you, sinner, righteous by grace through faith in Christ. One-time event, not a process. Solely based upon the finished work of Christ. We contribute nothing to justification. We don't add anything to it. All Jesus. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. But in sanctification, the process that we call sanctification, the Spirit of God is also doing work in our hearts as believers. But our growth and maturity, listen, is contingent upon our loving response of obedience to God's Word. This is why the spiritual disciplines are so important, beloved. That you be spending time with the Lord in devotion, seeking His face in prayer and, and opening up His Word and knowing Him and, and being filled with, with, with His commands for your life, which are not burdensome as a believer anymore, but for your blessing for his, unto His glory. So pick up books like Donald Whitney's The Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Pick that book up and read it. He talks about the importance of making sure that you do hard work in the Christian life, but in dependence upon the Spirit of God. You need to do hard work. 1 Timothy 4, 7, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, Paul says to Timothy. Bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds, it holds promise for the present life and also for the one to come. So we give effort. What else have we seen? Propelled by grace, we fulfill our God-given roles in the home, Right? Chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, and masters. Catapulted by grace. We remember, beloved, that, that by grace we are called to be faithful in our homes. As husbands and fathers in our marriages. As wives and mothers in the workplace, the employer-employee relationships. Children as well. All of us, by grace, realize that there is, a, there is a, a satanic force here on this earth trying to break down the family infrastructure in the home. And you know what that does? When the world sees that, the, that families are falling apart, even in the Christian church, it cheapens the grace of God. It sends a message to them that the grace of God does not work. And we know that it does, right? The problem is us and our sin and not living by grace and in obedience to the Lord and his instructions for a Christ-exalting home. That's the problem. Propelled by grace. Remember chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. We witness to the world. We pray evangelistically in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 4. We are conducting ourselves in such a way that people see the gospel lived out in our lives. The power of the gospel, that is. Oh, beloved, listen, our hearts, having been saved by grace, should be bursting at the seams as we look at the world around us. And we should look with compassion upon the lost, that they would understand this beautiful grace of God, that it's a free gift and there's nothing that they can do to earn it. We should want the world to know that message. And we should live in such a way where, that we would invite them asking us about that grace. 
If there's a God of grace who can forgive them, no matter what they've done. Listen to what one author has written concerning this idea of being propelled by grace. Discipline without desire is drudgery. What fuels holiness and obedience is the realization that you have been forgiven and you are secure in Christ. This assurance then drives the Christian to a relentless pursuit of personal holiness and love for others, love for the world. All of our obedience is fueled by grace, not by our personal performance or our own human merit. End quote. It's all by grace, beloved. It's all based upon what Christ has done. Listen, for the Christian, Christ is our life, isn't he? Chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says that Christ is our life. And when he's revealed, we also will be revealed with him in glory. Christ is not just part of your life, you understand, as a believer. Christ is, is not someone who you just add to your life on top of all the other stuff that you want to hold on to. Christ is your life. You don't just go to Christ occasionally to share him and invite him into your life to insert to certain aspects of your life. No, he is your life. Jesus is not just a food condiment or a seasoning that you add to your life to spice things up. A little Jesus here, a little Jesus there to add some spice and meaning to your life. Jesus is your life if you're a believer. He is your life, beloved. Everything that you and I do is defined and shaped by who Jesus is and what he has done for us and our loving response of worship and service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything. That's the point of Colossians. So that we should be able to say to some extent or another, like Paul, a man just like us. My favorite life verse, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the heart of the believer, beloved. Not just the heart of an apostle. The heart of a Christian. And you should pray for that. That Christ would be all things to you. That he would be your greatest treasure. That you would experientially see that in your life. That others would see it. Steve Lawson, from this very pulpit, it's a great quote from, from his sermon when he was here. He said, if living is not Christ, then you are merely existing. If living is not Christ, then you are merely existing. Great quote. Christ is our life. And so, beloved, as Paul concludes this letter, we're reminded that we never move beyond the grace of God. We never do. When we do, we're, we get ourselves into trouble, don't we? We get ourselves into trouble. We become performance-driven, comparing ourselves to other people, looking down upon others. We become guilt-ridden, paralyzed continually by a sense of failure, forgetting what Jesus did for us. Forgetting what he did for us. We need to be reminded of Christ, beloved. And then let him, what he has accomplished on our behalf, catapult us to a life of loving obedience, right? We don't diminish or downplay our sin, but we should remember the grace of God, that the grace of God is greater than our sin. And when you fail and you and I have failed and we are failing and we will fail, return to the cross and be reminded of the forgiveness of Christ, his grace, his love for you, so that it propels you to walk in loving victory. Amen. Grace be with us, beloved. Grace be with us. Let me pray for us as we close. Oh, Heavenly Father.
We're so grateful for your grace. Apart from your grace, we would not be here, Lord. Lord, help us to live being reminded of the amazing work of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Christ in our place for our sins, taking upon the punishment that we deserved on the cross, taking upon your wrath for our sins upon himself, his blameless, perfect, beautiful body. Oh, Lord, help us to be reminded of that and that that would catapult us and propel us to a life of loving obedience and holiness, that we would desire to be holy, to be like you. Help us to encourage one another in these things as well. As we look back at this glorious, beautiful book of Colossians, may we seek to live, Father, a Christ-exalting life. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.